Now, let me ask a question to begin with. What would it look like if you got what you really want? You know, just picture in your mind, what do you really, really want? Now, picture that. And let me ask you, is God there? I mean, is God right at the centre of your lives? Or is he repeatedly neglected at at the real kind of core, the centre of your heart? What you want, what you desire, will probably expose what you're actually investing in in your life. Now, I don't mean massive financial investments. That's probably beyond many of us. Um, But in our lifetime, and perhaps in the future, for some of us now, I guess, investments are actually beginning to secure our future, financial ones or other ones as well. And all of us invest in something. Just think financially for a moment. I mean, even if it's just paying off your student loans, that's, that's an investment as such. Uh, but some of us will be, you know, looking onto financial investments to secure our lives further down the line. Financial worry is turning into, yes, a little bit of financial security. And for some of us, financial security is turning into a bit of kind of financial luxury on, on a certain level. And of course, many of us, that's what we aspire to, isn't it? Money and what we can buy with that money, the life that we can lead with that money, permeates everything that we look at. That's why I'm trying to encourage the boys not to watch adverts the whole time. But Zachary actually recited the whole of an advert yesterday, I mean, it was a couple of days ago. And James just stood there going, just like, absolutely aghast. It was for a cleaning agent. But, uh, yeah, let's not get, you know, the influence is massive. And a child can see... That wherever you look, the city in which we live in, lovely city though it is, we're pretty money mad, aren't we? And greed seems key to that transformation. It's, the, it's a very reliable emotion, isn't it? It's kind of up there with envy and lust. We know it very well. But perhaps it's more long-lasting than the others. And even it can be quite respectable in our culture. It appears as kind of being quite thrifty, doesn't it? Or it may not appear at all, kind of shielded by our success. And people will discuss all sorts of issues, whether it be, you know, kind of how you're doing in the office or, you know, even your relationships. But do we talk about money? No, we struggle with that one. Probably more than anything else, because it will expose what we long to invest in and what we don't want to invest in. So what about you and me? What are you investing in? What would it look like if you got what you really wanted? Would God be there? Now I warn you, the book we're going to come to right now, Haggai, uh, will challenge you. And I pray that it will change you, as it has me. I've been looking at it. Um, It's the second shortest book in the whole of the Old Testament. A minor prophet in that kind of category there. Um, And uh, this little book of Haggai, I hope you've enjoyed it. So who is it? Let's, let's go through some real basics to begin with. Who was Haggai? He's mentioned uh, once else in the Bible in Ezra chapter 5 and 6. His preaching is mentioned there with regard to the rebuilding of the temple. Other than that, his, his name appears nowhere else apart from this tiny two chapters here. Historically, um, Haggai fits near the end of the Old Testament times. Let's just go back a bit though, if we can, to try and understand where this has kind of come from. So from the time of someone called Zephaniah the prophet, who was uh, kind of described in Ezekiel, we're talking about 608 BC here, okay? 
Jerusalem then first fell to the Babylonians. If you put a little picture up here, it might help a bit. So the Babylonians are down there. About there. Okay. And Jerusalem, they took over Jerusalem in, within the, their first attack of Jerusalem in about 608 BC. Many then were taken from Jerusalem um, around what's called the Fertile Crescent. You see the red line through the Babylonian, uh, down below Carchemish, down into Babylon. They were exiled. Okay, that's, that's where that word comes from. They're taken out of Jerusalem, down into Babylon. That first happened in 608. Once again then in 587 BC, uh, Jerusalem was besieged. And in then 586 BC, Jerusalem fell. It was completely sacked, burnt to the ground by the Babylonians. The temple was destroyed. And then the second great exile, the biggest um, exportation of um, Jewish people, came from Jerusalem down into Babylon again. That was commonly known, of course, as the, the major exile there. They stayed there for decades under Babylonian rule. And uh, the aim of the Babylonian Empire was to kind of assimilate people into their culture, into their ways. And they would do that in all sorts of ways. And you can read about Daniel. It's probably the most obvious book uh, to give a bit of kind of historical uh, background to that. The Nazis tried it uh, with the Jews in the 1930s. And the Babylonians tried it in the 500 BCs. It didn't work on either occasion. So you get to 539 BC. And the Babylonians were overrun from the north, from the Medes and the Persian Empire. They came down into Babylon, overtook them, and also in Jerusalem there led by Cyrus, the great king there. And in 539 BC, Cyrus had seen that the Jewish population were, were if, if you like, grown and grown, grown, very settled. He decreed that they, they, they then could return over the Fertile Crescent back into Jerusalem and to resettle and rebuild the Lord's temple there. He even would help financially with that move. So in 538 BC, about 50,000 people, God's people, came from Babylon back into Jerusalem with the money of Cyrus to rebuild the temple. Now, that's a very small proportion of the people. Many people stayed in Babylon. They'd flourished and they settled there and they decided to stay. But those that went back laid the foundation stones of the temple. But then they stopped because there was local pressure from local kings around Jerusalem um, and they stopped. And so you get these intervening years between 536 and 520 BC. The Persian Empire went through all these kind of leadership changes. And after some confusion, a man named Darius came to the throne. And it's during this period, the reign of Darius, um, of which Haggai preaches. Now, you'll see. That's a bit of background to what's going on here. hope that map was helpful. Um, He preaches four times. Four little inspired sermonettes, if you like, that are recorded in these two chapters of this little book. He gave them, we see, from late August to mid-December in 520 BC. And basically, the, the book as a whole, Haggai is calling God's people to make God and his work a priority in their lives. Especially with the temple in Jerusalem. And... The people listened. Though his prophecies uh, stopped in 520 BC, we can turn back to the historical books of Ezra and Nehemiah and see that although um, his, his prophecies stopped, 
They didn't stop rebuilding. And when you get to March 516 BC, in Ezra you can read that the temple had been finished. The work was complete. So Haggai kind of historically stands between Ezekiel, who receives a vision of God whilst in exile in Babylon, of the temple being rebuilt, and the historical books of Ezra and Nehemiah, of where we see that the temple has been finished in completion. Haggai sits between those two, um, if you like, historical events. So enough background. Let's look at what this little prophet says. And I hope we are moved to review ourselves, our own priorities, if you like, what we're investing our substance in. So let's look at verse 1 to 11 of chapter 1. And we see that God has acted to convict the people of their rebellion, their sinfulness, essentially. Their godless, selfish priorities. They've been in the, back in the land. They've come over there from Babylon into Jerusalem for now 16 years. And it was the 29th of August, 520 BC. That's, we get that simply by translating um, the Babylonian lunar calendar, which you can uh, see in verse 1, the days and months mentioned there. Now, despite this lengthy period, the Israelites had... They had only put, as I mentioned, a couple of months' effort into rebuilding the temple. The foundation stones were laid, but nothing else. And after that, they just waited 16 years doing nothing. Instead of using their wealth to to build the temple, they decided to spend it on themselves and their own homes. And so the Lord employs Haggai as a prophet to come and challenge them. To preach to them, to rebuke them, and to tell them this is not as it should be. And the rebuke begins in the form of a question. Look at it in verse 4. And it provides the theme of our first point. Look at it there. Why have you built your houses before mine, he says. And through Haggai, the Lord addresses the officials. You see that? Uh, We saw that. Well done, uh, Neil. It's very well done. Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel is the the political leader, and Joshua is the spiritual leader of the people there. And Haggai is used to to address both of those people. But of course, underneath all those people is, is everyone who's returned to Jerusalem. And we see the root of the problem. Look at that in verse 2, if you can. The people are indifferent. And even, they might even be said as opposed to the rebuilding of the temple. The foreign opposition they faced, and you can read about that in chapters 1 to 5 of Ezra, had only encouraged this kind of, oh, we're not sure, should we just leave? Yeah, let's just leave it, 16 years. You know, they just leave the temple as it is. It's amazing that, isn't it? We're like this all the time, well, I'm like this, I'll speak for myself at this stage. You know, whether it's in the office or even in church, even amongst our relationships, you know, they only have to find a little bit of kind of hostility towards what we want to do to give us an excuse to kind of give up. Yeah, we do that all the time. They're just making excuses here. But there may be a little bit of rationality to their thinking in verse 2. I mean, was it the right time to rebuild? There were very few men. They were probably trying to make ends meet to try and get their kind of economic status going. And, uh, you know, maybe their businesses were struggling. You you can see the rational thinking. Was it the right time? It's also conceivable that that some had even questioned the, the, the massive expense that would have been to rebuild God's temple. Could they justify it? And also, I guess some of them would have wondered whether they should rebuild it because 
had God really ordained this? Because it was actually King Cyrus who'd ordered the rebuild and not God himself. But some people, it seems, were actively against rebuilding the temple and they, they perhaps were, were waiting for something. That's what we see in verse 2 that these people say. It says, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Some of them may have been saying, look, the Messiah's not come. Let's wait for him and then we'll rebuild. Others may have just thought they were too poor to undertake rebuilding at this time. But it's interesting, however they assess their own poverty. I mean, verse 4 is pretty, pretty damning, isn't it? They've made, they've made enough room for themselves, enough finance for themselves to look after themselves. Look at it. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, that's what I put on the first point. I don't, I'm not sure that's a panelled house, but it's quite a nice house. And I, I guess we kind of you know, put that in as kind of uh, a slight parallel there. It's kind of the house overlooking the common, isn't it? It's, it's the rather pleasant place, which has a few bathrooms here and there and all those kind of things. You know, either way, it's a step up from the ordinary. At the cost of neglecting the work of God and rebuilding the temple, these guys have spent a lot of money on their panelled housing. And the question of verse 4, I think, rebukes a priority in the people. God's house just lay in ruins, foundation stones, yeah, but the unfinished walls, kind of, they would have kind of spoken as kind of an accusation against the people and their prioritization of themselves. There's this conflict between their, what would have been luxury homes, and the investment towards God's work. I guess that priority may still be with us today. We rationalise, don't we? We're, we're indifferent. We prioritise perhaps so that we might gain. And God's work will go unfinished. Or, or at least be deprived. I, I guess I, I speak for myself and you need to do uh, thinking yourself. I, mean, I guess greed will be in part of my day every day. As I long for that car or that house or, you know, even that little iPod and gadget or something, you know, do the work yourselves, you know, whether it's shoes or whatever, you know, is your thing that you love and you, you have greed towards, yeah? I rationalise my knowledge of what God's work needs all the time. Of course, you know, you and I would have heard before Christmas of the, the need that we have for you know, supporting missionaries abroad and, and all those kind of things that we mentioned. I don't want to go on that again, but do you do what I do? I rationalise that everyone else will be able to chip in more than me. Why have you built your houses before mine, God says? So God rebukes to begin with. And secondly, he warns. Let's go to the second point. He says, give careful thought to your ways, which have brought my discipline. Looking at verses 5 now through to 11. Look, with regard to your priorities, priority, sorry, God says this twice. Do you see it? Verse 5 and then verse 7 again, just so we get into our thick heads. Give careful thought to your ways. Do it, he's saying. Don't rationalise the situation, intellectualise, philosophise, whatever eyes you want to put your mind to. Think about your priorities and be careful, God is saying. Why? Well, because God 
through Haggai is showing that these everyday affairs in verse 6 are God's warning to a God-ignoring people. I mean, Haggai, he portrays the kind of the distress of the people here in very kind of bold strokes. Look at verse 6 with me if you can. You have planted much, he says, but you've harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but they're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. It seems like the economy is an absolute wreck. That inflation is probably rampant. You know, all the hedge funders are banging their heads against the wall at this stage. Um, it'd be great to, no, it would be great to see. And it seems that prices were high and wages were low. And it just seems as though, like one commentator put it, that money was flowing through their pockets. But God, even in this poverty, this situation of poverty inspired Haggai to preach these messages and to say to these people, hey, should the temple being rebuilt, should that be the priority? Yeah. Why though? Well, we see in verse 8. Have a look at down there. Because it would please him. Go up into the mountains and bring down the timber and build the house. Why? So that I may take pleasure in it and be on it. It would be an acceptable offering to God, he's saying here. Why do you think that? You know, the, the rebuilding of a temple. Why is that an acceptable offering to God? It's just a building, isn't it? Why does God care so much about a, a few stones in a bit of timber? Why? Well, because it would be a clear and very obvious public statement that his people, firstly, still wanted him. That they still valued him. That he was a, prior, a higher priority than their houses. That's the first reason. But it would also be a, a great sign to the nations around. That the God of Israel hadn't got out of business just because some people had gone into exile for a while. Yahweh was not dead. That's what they're saying. God is not dead. He's very much alive. That's what the statement of building the temple would have said. This, this rebuilding would have publicly vindicated God because the temple was the visible sign of God's covenant with his people, that he would be with them. And it showed a continuing desire to fulfill his promises to his people, like the promises he made to David. You will know that the Lord told David that his son Solomon would build a temple in his name, and he had. And that temple was a symbol of the, the living God amongst uh, the Israelites and, and him not abandoning them. But even God's future promises of a temple, uh, included a temple, sorry. With Isaiah, it was predicted that the temple would be torn down and rebuilt. And when the Babylonians took Jerusalem and they did tear down the temple and take the people captive, you know, you know, there was a sign here for the people returning. It was saying, you know, you know what Isaiah said, you know what God has said through that. Surely you should be doing something right now. See, all these events, as foreseen the prophecies, are, should have been associated in their minds. The temple's to be destroyed, build it again. Why? Because that is a sign of God's covenant to you and to the nations around. When God regathers his people, you start building. See, as a visible sign of God's presence with his people, you think the people returning should have known this. You, thought, you, you would have thought they'd made a priority, but they had not. 
So now God was using, well, look what he was using, verse 10 and 11. He was using a drought to get their attention. And he used this preacher, Haggai, to speak directly to them of their sin and their self-indulgence and their neglect of God. So what about us? What about you today, right now? Oh, you come to church, but how, is, how are your life investments going? Think about it. What do you invest your life in? You're investing right now, being sat here, listening to, to God's word being explained. But the question from Haggai is, what are you investing your life in? What are you giving it for? And you are giving it away, aren't you? Hour after hour, week after week, month after month, year after year. What are you investing your life in and what, what return are you getting for that investment? The Bible is clear that as people made in God's image, we, we, we so often separate ourselves from him. We rebel, we turn our backs on him, we sin, the Bible describes it. And our relationship with God is destroyed by that rebellious investment. You choose to invest elsewhere rather than with God. And that kind of investment, as we see here with the, the, the house, it gives God no pleasure. It is not honouring to him. And we know from Romans 6.23, which we're about to look at in home groups, that the return of that investment is death. The wages of sin is death. Now, you may not have come here today neglecting a Middle Eastern kind of, you know, kind of Jewish temple here. You may be guilt-ridden and burdened, but it's not because of your poor priorities regarding stones and timber, maybe. But we all are every bit as guilty of neglecting the God who made us and who sent his son to die for us and who will one day judge us. And that neglect, that rebellion, that turning our backs on God, that prioritising things other than him is utterly abominable to God. And I pray that if you do not understand that, you'll begin to sense that that dishonouring of God, and that in fact he takes no pleasure when you turn your back on him. Are you neglecting Christ's offer to forgive that guilt, to forgive that sin? Even when you claim to be one of God's people, a Christian, why do you think you are any less guilty than, than these people are? There's so much we can learn here from this little prophecy. If we only contemplate its truth. Are you investing your all in the Lord Jesus Christ? And what does that mean for you? I mean, have you kept something back? Maybe a relationship that you're involved in. You don't want to hear what God has to say on that. Maybe the way that you use not all your money, but some of your money. You don't want God to interfere with that, do you? Um, it could be all sorts of things. Maybe your time. Oh, you quite enjoy doing that, that, and that. And, and, and God, you, you can have that little bit. Oh, but you need to keep away from that. Note how careful God is in Haggai to match the circumstance he, that he ordains and the sin that they have committed. You see that? How they marry together? They had neglected God, the source of life. So they found the very sources of their lives failing. Whatever the ground produced, it was failing. Verse 11, you can see it there. 
Now, we need to think a bit doctrinally here. So let's just kind of take a, second, you know, a little kind of bit out here for a second. See, some calamities or some struggles or trials befall us unrelated to specific sins that we may have committed. And that is certainly true from the Bible. You can look at the Old Testament, New Testament, Job being an obvious example in the Old Testament, Paul in the New, and of course, ultimately in Christ. But we must admit that if we, are, if we look at the Bible carefully, uh, we see God's providence in our lives, that, that sometimes there is a, a work of God in our lives that exposes a specific sin, at least to ourselves, if to no one else. And it happens in the trials and the difficulties that God sovereignly allows to come onto us. And it hurts, but it is his loving fatherly discipline and in Haggai's situation ironically the people's stinginess regarding rebuilding the temple had the effect of keeping them poor under God's sovereignty and as God exhorts his people we need here to give careful thought to our ways And only us individually will know what we need to give careful thought to. Consider your lack of perhaps giving. Is that leading to financial difficulties? Now, I'm not a prosperity gospel teacher here. I'm not saying, you know, if you don't give lots, you won't receive lots. That's not what I'm saying at all. Just look at God through the book of Haggai here. Look at your ways and consider them and your priorities before God. I mean, why should God entrust you with wealth or me with wealth? Look at what we'll do with it. Think about that initial question that I asked you. If God has given uh, us wealth to, um, for his glory, for his honour and pleasure, as you see in verse 8, then why should he bless you if you, everything that he gives to you is like a black hole of materialist gain? You know, give me more so I can buy... No. Why should he give me more? And we need to pray for the grace of God to lead us and to teach us from his word. And we must, we must give careful thought to our ways. Your time, your money, your energy, your relationships. Pray carefully that God will give you wisdom in all of these elements of your life. Because the evil one would love us to not think clearly. What would it look like if you got everything you wanted? What would it look like? And is God there? Even our congregation, what is our commitment to God's work? We will as a congregation, you know, do as he asks. Or will we hold back from him? Prioritise other things? And if we do, the warning here is that we're sitting back and we're waiting for his discipline. And we need to love each other in that. We need to disciple each other. We need to be open and tell of our friends and our close friends and be accountable to them so we can encourage each other and build one another and support us, all of us together. And when we do that work, do you see what's happening? We begin to build the Lord's house. See, Haggai, I'm not looking at this book to say, hey, should we buy a plot of land in Earlsfield and build you know, a massive building? No, that's not the reason we're looking at this. Because we see that you know, the temple of God is already here. It is God's people. 
The temple is here amongst us right now. We are part of it. We're the body of Christ. And according to Hebrews, 1 Corinthians, 1 Peter, we are the temple of God. Therefore, we work to build up that body. And if you're a true follower of Christ, then you'll have, you'll have a major interest in wanting to build up that body. We need to be strengthened as we teach and encourage each other and, and groan as we take the gospel to our friends. We need to pray. That's why I've given you another one of those cards for C. So you might pray again this week for your friends and for those attending. Now, maybe you do feel perhaps a bit lost in this kind of building project. You know, if it pains you, then, then welcome to this, the joyful struggle that is the Christian life. Welcome. We're here together to support each other through it. But don't leave here without listening to God. Give careful thought to your ways. Or you may receive God's loving, fatherly discipline. Finally, very briefly. I am with you, says God. Build my house. We've heard a rebuke about the priorities in our lives, our investments, the warning, followed by discipline. What are now about our response? Now, the Old Testament is full of sad stories, isn't it, of rebellion of God's people. Uh, Don't you get a bit miserable when you go through the Old Testament sometimes and they just don't listen ever? Well, here's a good one. I thought we'd turn to one we can actually smile about and say, they were obedient, hooray, that's what you want to do when you get to Haggai. They actually listened. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel and son of Shealtiel, Joshua son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest and the whole remnant of the people, that is the remnant, is the faithful Israelites who'd returned that last little bit. They obeyed the voice of God and the crowd went, yay, and the Lord uh, the, obeyed the Lord um, their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God has sent him. And the people feared the Lord. It's brilliant, isn't it? They obeyed the voice of God. They feared. I guess as one, if you, as you fear, as you, if, if you've been woken up suddenly, if you like. They've been startled by the voice of God through Haggai. And they've woken up. Whoa, they've woken up to their rebellious ways. And they've turned and obeyed God. And they've prioritised God in their lives. These obedient children receive from their father the greatest gift of all, don't they? And it's not money. Uh, You see what it is? He says, I am with you. The father gives himself. It's the greatest gift that any father can give his son. And if only London dads would hear that as well. On the 21st of September, 520 BC, the faithful remnant of the Israelites who had returned from exile with very skewed priorities went into action and they obeyed God. With Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua leading the people, encouraged by God's promise of his presence with him, they began to rebuild the house of God, this symbol of God dwelling amongst his people. And it's with that same encouragement that we, should, we too should build God's house, his temple, that is his church today. And we know that God has put his spirit in our hearts if we've come to him by faith. And he is more personally with us now than these people ever knew. He is with us by his spirit in our hearts if we have come to him through faith in Christ. So will we? Will we like the Israelites be obedient. 
Will the encouragement of God's presence in our hearts by his spirit prompt us to build his house, his church? Will our priorities change from hearing God's words of rebuke and warning? Or will we have to face the fatherly discipline of God because of our selfish neglect of him? Let's pray as we close. Spurgeon once said, if men are selfish and keep their wealth to themselves and rob God of their portion, they shall not prosper, or if they do, no blessing shall come with it. Heavenly Father, that speaks of our our financial wealth, but as we look at all of our lives, help us to not rob God of the pleasure and the honour that he deserves. And also that the witness that that um, prioritisation of him will be to our friends and to those around us in Earlsfield. Lord, we pray for that blessing. And we know that that may not be material wealth, but we, we know that that will be spiritual wealth, intimate relationship with you and the growth of your church. Lord, help us to prioritise the building of your church for your glory, for your honour, and for your pleasure. Amen.